0: Welcome to the New Stories Podcast. Okay, happy Friday, everybody. It's a (laughs) good day here on Norwood Road, and I'm Rodney Glasgow, head of school at Sandy Spring Friends School out here in Sandy Spring, Maryland. And I am joined today by members of our lower school, middle school, and upper school, we're going to give us a developmental lens actually all the way through college selection and the college process. And I'm really excited because we're going to talk actually about self-advocacy. And so before we get into dissecting it and digesting it, um, I'd love for you to meet who's with me today to dig into this topic of self-advocacy. And so I will ask, maybe in order of division. For y'all to so just introduce yourself, name, years at the school, anything else you want us to know as dive in.
1: My name's Bella Magani. I teach in the lower school and the learning specialist. I've been at Sandy Spring for 10 years as a faculty member and more years than that as a parent.
2: Hi, I'm Patty Lemire. I'm the middle school learning specialist and I've been at Sandy Spring Friends School for eight years, almost all of those years as a parent as well.
3: My name is Shannon Needham. I use she, her pronouns. I am one of two upper school learning specialists. I've been in the upper school for almost 5 years now. Although I don't have children who attend Sandy Spring, I have college age and middle school students in other places, so I see it from the parent perspective as well.
4: My name is Chris Miller. I'm the director of college counseling in the upper school. I am halfway through <laughs> my 3rd year at Sandy Spring and am a lower school parent.
0: Wonderful. So a lot of developmental range and and let's just start with making sure We're all on the same page and that they're with us about what we're talking about. So when we say self-advocacy, especially in a school setting, what does that mean? How would we define self-advocacy?
2: Well, Rodney, the first thing I think of is being able to communicate what you need to others and also whether or not you might need some help getting your needs met. But really, it starts out with having the self-awareness to realize that you have some needs, and then being able to communicate what needs are to your teachers or other trusted adults.
0: Mm. I want to come back to that framing, too, of communicating what you need. It actually just came up this morning, but anybody want to add to that?
1: I think the, uh, one of the really important pieces, especially in the school setting that Patty highlighted, is the trust factor and how do we build that as a community. Um, children really need to know that if they're going to take that risk of talking to you, that, that you're someone who they can count on.
3: Mm. Mm.
0: So there's a reciprocity in it. It's mm-hmm. communicating what you need, with the trust that someone's going to try to meet you at that need.
3: Yeah, I think I would add to that, that we often say self-advocacy and we think of it as a very private singular thing, right? Like I'm going to self-advocate for my needs. I think what we often need to recognize, even as adults, is that that it can be a collaborative process and that one of the most important parts of self-advocacy is recognizing your resources. And so knowing who can be your partner in self-advocacy can help you get to a point of being able to be that singular self-advocate when you need to be.
0: Mm. Mm. So if we only had like two minutes for the podcast, we could end it right there because y'all hit on all the nuances of what it is we need to tease out because it is a complicated being, self-advocacy, and there are some clear and then some gray lines between things like self-advocacy and selfishness, right? Mm -hmm. And and selflessness. How do you manage those? When I was thinking when Patty said, communicating what you needed. In the upper school this morning, we were talking about affinity groups, looking through the lens of race at affinity groups. And a student of color had said to us, so when we're in our affinity groups and there are things that we need, how best can we communicate? It was almost like you would talk to Patty. How best can we communicate that so that people respond to us and it doesn't sound selfish or pushy. And what a real moment of how do I do self-advocacy well? And so maybe that's where we go next, is underneath his question was, what doesn't it mean, right? When does self-advocacy blend into selfishness or just self-interest? When do you know you're out of the box of self-advocacy that really works in the community?
4: That's a really interesting way to put it. One of the, the ways of looking at it that I'll borrow from another person, which I thought was just great, is be able to answer for yourself the question of is the thing that I'm looking to be an advocate for something that really only makes my life easier, it makes my <laughs> life better, you know, or is it something that I will benefit from, but then it also can benefit Shannon? or the person across the room, right? You know, and I think that that's where you start to find that line of advocating for yourself and trying to figure out what that voice is, but then also thinking through, is this just in my own self-interest? And then is that something worth advocating for? And at what level should I be advocating for it?
3: And that's, Rodney, that's a really compelling question, I think, because it hits on some other skills. I mean, what Chris just described is a process that involves a lot of higher level thinking skills and perspective taking that depending on the developmental age of the child, they may not have mastered yet. But I think behind that is um, there being a safe space where a student can make mistakes. The first part of that is being able to go to somebody and say, here's how I'm feeling, here's how I'm self-advocating is that valid? And number one, knowing that sometimes we tell ourselves stories that aren't entirely true, and that we might need resources in our lives who we trust enough to make mistakes with that we can throw those things out there in order to see if it is something we should indeed take action on.
1: I think that's a really important point because we're a PK-3 through 12th grade school. We know that our youngest learners are trying to tease out what is the difference between something I want and something I need. And it's not selfishness at that age, right? So as as Shannon put it, there's a developmental lens on this piece. And so what we're really doing with our youngest learners is really getting them to think in community terms as well. So at school, we're a community of learners. And so they're all things that we want. They're all things that we need. And Which of those can we help each other with and which of those do we have to wait, which is a hard thing to do, right? And so we're really working on making it a skill and as well making it a communal kind of conversation that we're all there for each other, but there are times where some people need more than others and how will we help them?
0: So interesting having this conversation in the context of just having seen what went down at the Capitol on January 6th coming off of a a summer, a year, many years of civil unrest in this country. And and the language y'all are using around self-advocacy just has me boiling inside to say, okay, so where's the line between self-advocacy and getting what I need? And maybe sometimes getting what you want. That's not a bad thing necessarily to advocate what you want sometimes too, and protest for insurrection. Where do they start to, to differ? And and as I'm thinking about it, I'm also to be transparent in my thinking, thinking about how in an independent school setting, self-advocacy can sometimes come off as an elitism or an entitlement, like all those sort of negative associations that we can have with self-advocacy. How do we keep ourselves and our students out of that?
2: You know, one of the things that I thought about was in our community, the way we use first names, starting from PK-3 all the way up to 12th grade that our students are calling you Rodney, for example, instead of doctor, right? And so I'm sure that's a shift for for others who aren't as familiar with it. But I think that that piece helps us look at each other as humans. You have needs, I have needs, and how can we collaborate? Kind of going back to what Shannon said earlier, how can we collaborate so that we're getting our needs met? And for our kids who come through our lower school and who are more familiar with that, I think that process is more natural and is just easier for them. But I think it is a pretty quick transition when when you join the community as well.
4: To build on what Patty was just talking about, the thing that was coming to my mind was, you know, we do talk at each division about how our educational philosophy is embedded in the question, reflection, action. I think what you're speaking to right there, Rodney, is more of the action piece. I think what the big moment of it, though, is the middle part of the reflection, right? Our goal or our hope is for the student is that their ability to learn how to sit with the reflection of what they're looking to gain, that that's really where the buildup of the advocacy is. I mean, I also tend to think that the ability to advocate well and to get what you want is also know how to ask for it in the right way. Everybody responds to requests differently. Some people you can be more direct with. Others, you might need to work a little bit. And you're only going to get that far if you reflect and really get to know the other side of that coin well enough to then be able to get to what you're looking for to have. But it's going to involve somewhere that, that heart of reflection.
3: So to kind of build on what Chris said, Robbie, where I started reflecting on your question was, well, where did things go wrong in a self-advocacy moment if you bring up the capital if i if i perspective take right and i put myself in the shoes of someone who makes those choices what you know what went wrong in terms of the process that led them to feel that that was the only way that they should or could self advocate in thinking of it in that framing i keep going back to that being isolated right like that not perspective taking for others not trying to think through it not reflecting failing to do all of those things that chris and patty have just mentioned and the other thing that i thought of is possibly not having the experience of being told Told no, there is a skill that is about not getting what you want, right? Of self-advocating and not having the outcome be what you wanted it to be. And how do we respond to that? And I think in our emphasis on community at all divisions, what we're teaching students is that sometimes that's the reality. Sometimes your personal want or maybe even need in some ways, if that need compromises too many other people, we might have to make a personal compromise. And I think all of those things, practicing all of those skills happens in the soft intangibles of our classrooms and committees and things uh, every day.
0: You know, thinking about that question you posed to us a couple minutes ago, Shannon, around self-advocacy being about reflecting on what do I need? And I go back to that conversation I had this morning with the upper school student. My response to him was when you come to advocate for yourself and what you need, focus on the need versus the outcome. A lot of people come and they're like, okay. I need you to do this for me. And they've skipped over what that thing is supposed to solve for them or what is the gap I'm trying to fill for you. And then you get stuck on the action to what Chris was saying. And you forget that there's a million ways that someone could solve a need for you if you let the process go. I think that's part of our quicker roots, right, is continuing revelation and and allowing the process to take on its own life without adherence to the outcome. I guess I ask you all if if we're going to do it that way, (laughs) which is not the easy way to do it, but it's the right way to do it. How then do I sit and determine what do I really need? And what is actually this thing that I think? Because most people start with the concrete action that they want the outcome. How do they back their way into figuring out what actually am I trying to get? What do I need as the basis for my self-advocacy?
1: The one way that we approach that in the lower school at the beginning of every year is we start with hopes and dreams, which is our way of getting students to think about goals. Where is it that I want to go? And certainly, depending on the grade and the age, there's guidance needed around that because it's a really big question. But in an essence, we're getting them to think about kind of like what the structure of school is. What are the kinds of things we're going to do? What will be really hard? What will be hard for you, but not for me? And so we have these conversations through stories and kind of debates almost because some people will say, that's easy. You know, this is the, the thing that sometimes lower schoolers say to their peers. And so what will that look like? So if this is hard for me and it's not hard for you, what can I ask you? What can you ask me? And then what will our answers be? Will that work for everybody? How will we fit it all in? And so we take a lot of time on this. Sometimes parents ask us, when are you going to start academics, right? And we say to them, this is academics. This is how we get to a place where children trust us enough to try hard things and knowing that they can ask us for help. So it really takes a while for us to help them express or really reflect, as Chris said, and then express what it is that we're going to do for each other. And I think helping them see a concrete goal is one way.
4: So if I can just say that I'm bouncing up and down inside and having a little party with Bella and her comments because I feel like I need her to come and be the guest speaker for the 12th graders (laughs) (laughs) at this stage because she's at one end of the spectrum being in the lower school from where I am which is the outcome uh, you know given my role and and it's amazing because they have so many experiences from the time that they entered k the 12th grade. And when they get to the end and they even start thinking it beyond Sandy Spring Friends School, we try to bring them back there. But they're so focused on the outcome at that point that they tend to lose sight of the fact that even at the end of the road, it still is just about the hope and the dream. And Bella can appreciate this. And actually you all can appreciate this, given where you are and have been with your college-age children and the process that we try to go through with them and really thinking about, like, you know, I know you want this outcome. Whatever the outcome is, right? They come and say, I want to go here. I want to do this. And then the response that they get from a good counselor, in my opinion, is, okay, well, tell me about your goals. It's like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> what do you mean goals? Like the point of about being a good advocate for yourself is, of course, you might know what you want on the other side of that, but to, to get that, we gotta talk about what is it that brought you here? And then if you can articulate that well, then we can get you to the other side of that. But it's all a part of that process. And I feel like that's what we're always constantly doing from when they're five and six years old and then when they get to be in seventh and eighth grade and then when they get to be in ninth and 10th grade, we're still moving them along in a certain way to realize that, you know, it's it's a process. And clearly it's a process that you can get continue to get better at. But it's one of those things that you're never done with. And the fact that you, and if you keep doing it, you'll get better at it. And that's how you'll get to the things that you really want to have because you're continuing to build on that. So, yes, but Bella, you're, you're going to be the next guest speaker um, at, at some program I'm doing.
2: <laughs> well, Chris, as you were talking, it made me think about the middle school approach and just to, you know, thinking back to how developmental all of this is. But at the end of the day, self-advocacy really is about a skill, like you just said, that needs to be practiced. And during those middle grades, I mean, we are all about the practice, whether it means deciding that you need to ask your teacher a question, how do I do that? Well, let's start with an email. Or I'm going to take my friend with me today when I go meet with my teacher during advisory. And I think if we just remember how much practice this takes, whether you start in PK-3 or you join us, like you said, at age 15, it's something we practice year after year. And then our students, I mean, I've heard from so many who come back and talk about how easy it was to talk to their professors at college because they had already, one, been calling teachers by their first names, and two, they knew how to have a conversation with their trusted adults. It's making me want to hear a
0: concrete example as we go up the developmental chain of either a good self-advocacy from a student and what made that really good, what made that successful, or you can always learn from failure. Which one where a student tried to self-advocate and just didn't do it right and had to go back and redo it or learn from the outcome of that? I'll give you a minute, but not long, because emergent thought is good. So something popped into your mind (laughs) when I said that. And we want to hear that child, that story about self-advocacy that pops out for you. And and how is it characteristic of even that point of child development? Because self-advocacy looks so different, too, as you go up.
1: Well, the first thing that popped into my mind is in first grade, we have students who need a quieter space, maybe a space that just doesn't have activity in the periphery of their vision, right? Um, and how do we do that in a classroom? And so we spend a lot of time saying, here are some spaces. There is a single desk over here. There is a single desk in the hallway. We have these cardboard dividers. These are all your choices. So if you're doing writing or something that's hard for you and you need to focus extra, then what could you do? You can ask, you can say, can I go to the, or can I go get the, And then that's how we start the year. And then eventually we get to the place where you just get up and you just move yourself. And that's okay because we've established that that's what we're going to do. We leave these spaces available to you and then you know what you need and it works. And so that's the first thing that popped into my mind.
2: And I would say in middle school, the first thing that popped into my mind was having a student who was new to middle school and when we were meeting one day I suggested that we go down and ask the teacher what her question was because I truly didn't know the answer at that time and she looked at me just so confused and she said well why would we do that and I said because that's what we do we need to find out the answer to this question I don't know the answer and she said I'm too scared I can't do that I've never talked to one of my teachers like this and so I said well let's go together And so, you know, down the hall, we walked and I walked in and said, this student has a question for you. And just that opening was enough for her to take a deep breath. And out came this little question. As soon as the teacher started talking, the stress melted away from the student and we got our question answered.
3: So I think at the upper school level, what jumped out to me was the number of students for whom self-advocating is still a new skill, it could be really successful students. and In fact, sometimes students who have been extremely successful in school all the way through and don't hit a roadblock till they're a junior are the ones who really haven't developed this skill. And what I hear a lot from them are things like, Well, it's not fair if I ask for this. So it's almost an over-empathizing or an over-perspective taking in terms of, well, I don't want to ask for this because, or this is what the teacher said, so that's just how it is. There isn't that acknowledgement that they can give it a shot. Actually, both Patty and Bella spoke about scaffolding, which is what we do so much of, you know, building those little tiers so that the students can step up onto them. And so one of the things that I also believe in is giving students something that they can take and can be useful beyond that interaction with me or or beyond that particular moment of self-advocacy. So I had a student who sort of fit that description that I just gave. And what she and I did together was wrote some templates for emails that she could send to teachers when she had a question or a moment where she needed to self-advocate and that they were just the little sentence starters and, and so that they could be contextualized. But it allowed her to take with her a tool that she could then use. And also it helped us in our conversation, she and I, and that we could continue to use some of that language we had developed together. And I think the phrase use your words has kept popping into my head during this conversation, because when you ask the question about, well, how do you know when it is a time to self-advocate? And I think it goes back to use your words to identify your feelings, use your words to then assess whether or not those feelings are something that you should take action on. And I think the more that we can scaffold students or even our friends and colleagues (laughs) around using our words, the more likely we are to choose the right moment to self-advocate.
4: One of the things that popped in my mind—the upper school students have to go through every year once they get to at least you know the end of eleventh grade—is that they come to this moment where we tell them that, you know you need to ask at least one teacher for a recommendation for something, whether you're going to college, whether you're applying for a summer job or a summer program. It's amazing that. There's always that small percentage that, that comes to this point, and they go, "Oh, well, I'm not sure who to ask." And it's like, "Well, you spent at this point six months, like you know, with a teacher. This is your chance to advocate for yourself, and ideally have a teacher who can be an advocate for you." Always interesting to see that hesitation on the part of some students because they they have built an impression of, in their mind of what a teacher thinks of them, even if it's the completely wrong impression, it becomes a a pretty big moment for some of them to build them up to the point where they can go and and ask for a recommendation from a teacher or two. Part of it, too, is that fear of being told no. Not that most of them will, (laughs) you know, say no, but it at least then leads into a, a different conversation. Whereas if a teacher might be hesitant, then we can explain, well, now is your chance to explain why you think that they would be a good person to write for you. Now you get to advocate for yourself and have a a longer conversation about that and maybe sway them in a different way.
0: So in hearing this, I've been thinking about, you know, the alter ego of self-advocacy is learned helplessness. And one of the places you learn helplessness first is typically at home from parents who love you and mean well, but they want to do everything for you, right? Because they love you and they mean well. And so as we've been talking about self-advocacy in the school sense, but there's always the school-home partnership. How can parents at each developmental stage help their kids to be self-advocates in the home? And, and also, of course, course, when they go to school, what can parents do to encourage self-advocacy in their own relationships with their kids?
1: In the lower school, I I would agree the homeschool partnership is huge because our young learners are dependent quite a bit on parental and adult support for a variety of things. But what are those things that they are not? And what are those things that you can allow them to fail at on a daily basis? What are the routines that you can put in? And a routine is not a bad thing. A routine really helps a child feel secure enough to do the things that are hard. And so helping parents learn that, you know, a bedtime routine, a morning routine really is one of the, the parent ed pieces that are critical when you first enter lower school, especially if you enter in the early part of lower school. And so um, making sure that we have those communications with parents and really before that even establish some trust So that they know that what we are saying is not a personal um, comment or judgment of any kind, but really what it is, is good child development practice and really supportive of their learners and that we're here for them. And so starting with the parent piece really helps us know that when the child comes to school, we can say it's okay that you don't know how to do this or that you can't tie your shoes or whatever it is that feels really hard in the moment. And that you could ask for help and that there'll be a process, right? And that every day gets better, but it's okay to try. And I think the try piece and the other word that's really big for us in lower school is yet. And it's not that you don't know
2: how to do it. It's that you don't know how to do it yet. And we can get there together. Well, I think from the middle school perspective, Rodney, and that partnership is so incredibly important. But one of the things I I think middle school parents would tell you that they see is that with our advisory program, for example, if a student is struggling in a class, maybe they've missed a couple of homework assignments and they may need a little bit of help. It's very possible that that situation... And we will try to work with the teacher, the advisor and the student and work that out with the student and then let the parents know kind of what happened and what the plan is moving forward. It really is going through the process of advocacy and finding the assistance that that child needs and then letting the parents know how it worked so that they can see how the process plays out.
3: I think at the upper school level, when you're dealing with adolescent brains, it's my favorite human is of that age, even though when I tell people I teach in high school, they're like by choice. Um, <laughs> but I, I love the push pull that occurs at that age in terms of their ability to process and think critically and how all of that is coming on board. And at the same time, their little frontal lobes and their decision making ability and the ability to moderate emotion in the mix of all that is is still somewhat young, <laughs> years away from full development. I think as a parent, it's really hard <laughs> to parent that brain sometimes and not feel like a failure yourself. And so I think a lot of times we continue to want to give our kids the answers and to make the path easy for them because, you know, that's our job, right? To take care of them and to make sure that they're safe. But I think at this age is when we have to start to give them a little more, a little more space and also treat them with a little more adult respect. Two things that I advise for both parents, but also use as a parent is modeling, letting my students or my own children have sort of a a bird's eye view into conversations I might be having that involve self-advocacy. Like if I'm working on something, maybe I'm self-advocating for a raise to my boss or I'm self-advocating for something in a in a store. But allowing my students or children to see me in that role helps them find the words to be able to do those types of things for themselves. And then I think secondly is even allowing them to be the expert and asking them for advice. I'm working through this thing and I really think I need to speak up, but I'm not sure would you mind talking through it with me? And I think, you know, keeping boundaries in mind and and developmental appropriateness, but at the same time, honoring the child's opinion. And and oftentimes I learn from them. It's not that I'm doing it just to teach them. There are times where their perspective and where their brain is offers me an insight I hadn't even thought of. And so I deeply value that as well. And I also know that suggesting this as a parent, sometimes your kids are like, "Ah," you know, and they get the eye roll and the sigh. And um, I think that my... uh, My recommendation is just to persist. We're not cool as parents, especially to our teenagers. And just keep trying because they remember and they come back years, years later. And and maybe not directly about that specific instance, but you see it in the echoes of the choices that they make.
1: I really want to echo that idea of modeling as teachers, as models for things like that. Children are continually surprised that I'm still learning things, that I don't know everything and that there are things that they know that they can teach me. And that message has to be sincere and it has to be consistent. And I think that's a really important piece to say that I'm still trying things and I have to speak up and it's not always easy.
2: And I think also that I too make mistakes right? We're in this together. And just showing your ability to say, oh my gosh, you guys, I really messed that lesson up. Or, oh my gosh, I totally forgot we were supposed to do X, Y, and Z. And I think owning that, and it shows them that this is a safe place. It's okay to, you know, you're doing your best and we're trusting that we're all doing our best here. And
0: I'm thinking about quiz on the the college end of the spectrum. And, And I remember when my son went off to Vassar, and I was informed that I wasn't going to be receiving the report card. I was like, what? (laughs) How am I going to know (laughs) what's going on? Who am I supposed to call when I need to know about what this kid is doing? And it was a big lesson as a parent of this is their moment of self-advocacy. They have to share that report card with you. You better hope they call you if, you know, they're trying to figure out what to do about this professor and how to get that, that grade up, right? And they do. But, but what can parents do, especially in that college moment where it's like, I'm letting go, but the moment you get the call, that's the make or break moment of like, are they going to share with me again? Am I going to get this right? How can parents, especially with kids in college, continue to help them practice self-advocacy?
4: I think everyone keeps writing a book on it because because no one really knows how to figure it out, right? So, so everybody has to try to write some addition to the canon. One of the things is that there's the, the instinct to want to solve. And it's almost a fight that as a parent, I think you have to have to not allow yourself to have to solve this. So the question to the parent is, rather than figuring out how to solve the problem, can you ask better questions to help them figure out how to solve it? You know, don't think about it in terms of like, I got to figure this out for them. What What question can you ask them to then help them think about how they might be able to figure that out? And then let them go, like, you know, then turn around, like close your eyes, hold, like, you know, clench your fists, like do everything you can do for them to like hang up the phone or close the FaceTime and then breathe and then you go, okay. All right, now they're gone until they call back again with some other crisis.
0: (laughs) I love it. So we talked about schools setting the scene and having the culture where students can trust that when they self-advocate, They're in a place that's gonna try to meet them where they are and get them what they need, right? And that's the work that schools need to do to be places of that goes back to my belonging. If you're in a school where you feel like you belong, then you self-advocate because you feel like the school's gonna help me. And then we talked about students showing up their skills to do that self-advocacy right, to know what they need and know how to communicate with it. We talked about parents at home showing up those skills at home so that they are even better when they get to school about it. But we didn't talk about teachers yet. And so for teachers and as an educator, there's that moment where when a child self-advocates, how you respond could also make or break that relationship and how you take that self-advocacy as either a challenge to you to meet the child where they need or a challenge to you in something you didn't do well as a teacher, right? We know that discernment you're going through. How do teachers prepare themselves to respond well? to self-advocacy from students and make their classrooms places where students would love to self-advocate, even if they would never think of doing it anywhere else.
2: Definitely, you know, so many teachers are active listeners, but it often comes down to practice. The fact that our advisors get to see their advisees every morning as we start the day, they get to have a kickoff in the morning, a kickoff to a great day. And they see each other twice a week after lunch for tutorial time where they can check in academically. And then at the end of the day, we have a checkout so that you can, you know, shake out with your advisor, say goodbye, and it's another touch point. So for both our students and our teachers, we have ample opportunities to practice and then also ample opportunities where if that teacher Thinks that something might be up. The eyes are a little bit wet, you know, they're kind of looking down, whatever. They read into that, and right away they are going to say, Hey, can you stay back just a second? Or I forgot to ask you something, and just engage and get that conversation going.
1: In lower school, I think it
2: begins with a really strong developmental understanding of the age group that you're working with,
1: because our students are not always going to self advocate in ways that sound smooth or clear, or possibly even in the right tone. And you have to be able to speak six year old. You have to be able to know what's going on in that developmental range. But then, as Patty says, the fact that we know our students so well that we spend a lot of time focusing on the on the child and not where we're trying to get them to go, um, but really where they are right now. And so the more that we know our students and know where they are developmentally, the last piece I think maybe Rodney that you're suggesting is how do I receive the message that I wasn't giving you what you needed and now you need to ask for it. And I think that comes down to your understanding of possibility and that you have prepared all you can and now you also have to listen and be open to the idea that there's more. The student who I said earlier chose the space that worked for them. Afterwards, they were like, oh, I'm gonna do that again because it worked for me, right? And, and for the teacher, I think it's the same. Oh, he chose that space. I'm so glad that that was something that we set up. And so with experience and the more you do this, the more you realize that there's always going to be things that I can do to serve the students. And it's really a question of service.
3: I think for some reason, phrases pop into my head easiest. And when you ask this question, two things popped in. One was warmth and curiosity and making sure that there are questions and not using statements where questions should be. If a student comes to you, and as is suggesting, you know sometimes self-advocacy looks really clunky in adolescence too, all of our teachers have chosen to work at a place where the phrase lifelong learners is thrown around quite freely. And so if we're embracing the idea that we are all lifelong learners and that any of our students might be bringing a lesson to us, and we are receiving that lesson with warmth and curiosity, and if we're in some way activated by what has happened trying to step back and lead with a question as opposed to just responding with a statement. That sort of progression might be a good place for a teacher to start in terms of trying to frame how you respond, particularly to a clunky self advocacy attempt. I think clunky is a great descriptor, Shannon.
2: <laughs> I totally agree.
0: And, and clunky sometimes comes from there are skills that underpin self advocacy, and they're, and they're pretty hard skills like executive functioning, social cognition written and verbal expression, right, higher order cognition sometimes as well to discern what you need. If you don't have strengths in those areas, how then do you practice self-advocacy, right? How do you show up those skills if you don't have those to underpin self-advocacy?
1: Sometimes it begins with trying something. So it might look like maybe this will help you, right? And here it is. And I'd really like you to try it. And if it doesn't work, then you don't have to try it again. But sometimes it comes from the external, knowing that people are paying attention to what you need and providing you with something And then if it works or it doesn't work, just the idea that you know that there's possibilities of support out there. I mean, I think that's where we have to start because I think some children come to us with the notion that compliance is something that we value and to help them understand that that's not not what we want. Especially in lower school, they're like, just tell me what you want and because I want to please you and that's what I'll do. And so really helping them understand that it's, a, as you
2: say, a reciprocal relationship. It's not a one way. And my first thought too was start small. And I agree with Bella, try one thing, one strategy, whether it's using Shannon's email template or using a buddy system. I'm going to take my friend from advisory with me today. I think starting small and finding which strategies work for you, that's the best road.
3: And I think leveraging strengths. I think that looking for what makes this person in front of you magic, no matter what their age is, what can light them up, what makes them feel good about themselves, or may be a real strength of one of those underpinnings that, you know, can tease it out. What in there is is a strength to start from there? Because I think part of the risk we run, right, is wanting the best for them. And we want to in- improve and increase and do all these things. But at the same time, you can inadvertently send the message that there's all these things wrong. And so we want to avoid that as well and take the strengths and sort of the natural tendencies and joys of this little human we've got or big human in front of us and continue to, to strengthen the other skills.
0: We have done a very deep dive <laughs> on self-advocacy. And so I I just have one question left, which is thinking about our own school's motto rooted in our Quaker identity of let your lives speak, which is the essence of self-advocacy. And so if you're gonna build a whole school around it, it must mean there's a lot at stake if we don't do this. So what's at stake if students don't self-advocate well, if schools don't allow self-advocacy, if parents don't have their kids practice it, if teachers don't receive it and respond to it, like, what's at stake if self advocacy isn't working in the school environment?
2: I think it's such an important piece of being a productive member of your community and of the larger community and then of society at large. And so, as we've been talking about kids going through the developmental stages of learning these skills, it really does continue. They continue to practice in college or whether it's at their job site or wherever they go beyond high school, we continue to practice these skills and get better at them hopefully as we use them more and more.
4: I've been trying to think of the right way to say this without having to fumble through it because it's it's such an important question Anyone who's not allowing themselves to let their life speak really is fundamentally cheating the rest of the world from whatever beauty, whatever talent, whatever difference that they can make anywhere. It certainly doesn't. It doesn't allow you to really experience the whole sense of whatever it is that you want to do and what you intend to do. You know, your world becomes that much smaller. So it really does close you off in a way that just holds you back and that what what really becomes at stake is is that whatever life or whatever world it is that you really do hope to exist in starts with allowing yourself to figure out what voice you have and how you want to use it and for i think many people not necessarily going to garner you a nobel prize you know that's not the point point is is that whether it's that the one friend you have you know, that lives next door to you that sits to you in class or the future colleague or, or, or life partner you might have that right now, today, is in another country, that can never be if you don't start with just taking a moment and asking for one thing, getting back to what Bella was saying, just starting with one thing. And I think that that's where, that that's where the cheating comes from. You know, it's, it's, not, it's cheating yourself, but it's also cheating that other entity that you have the chance to make a difference in their life on.
3: I think when you say what's at stake, what I thought of is, what's at stake is if there is a misinterpretation of let your life speak, and it becomes a very selfish, let my life speak. And I wonder if, to go back to where you started in terms of the capital insurrection and and moments where self-advocacy is misinterpreted and becomes a very selfish act, I think that that's what's at stake, right? Not learning these little lessons, not having an opportunity to engage with a community and make small mistakes and learn small lessons in all of those little sub-skills building up along the way could really lead to a misinterpretation of things such as let your life speak. And for me, that's the greatest risk is that misinterpretation.
0: So maybe we let it rest right there. (laughs) Um, Where if you don't learn self-advocacy at the youngest ages, it's a mistake that replicates and grows Right, And the implications and the ripples out of that are bigger and bigger and bigger. And so thank y'all for an engaging conversation this Friday afternoon on self-advocacy. I hope you um, advocate for your own downtime this weekend. (laughs) And just thank you for being on the podcast with me. Always a pleasure.
2: Thank you, Rodney. Appreciate you hosting. Thank Thank you. you.
4: Thank you, Rodney.
2: Thank you for listening to this week's episode
0: of the New Stories Podcast.